Greetings, friends. This is Why Whiskey, a history podcast with a whiskey problem. Or is it a whiskey podcast with a history problem? We'll let you decide. Head on up to the bar, grab a stool and a drink, and let's talk. Hello there. Do you you come here often? Me too. I kind of own the place. Uh, anyway, welcome back, uh, my goobers and friends. Thank you for joining me for our third and final installment of the Why Whiskey Christmas Special. This special has focused on the holiday that we start celebrating in September and start counting down to the next one the day after it's over. Oh, Christmas. Oh, Christmas. Anyway, this episode is going to close out a few thoughts and fun facts about the holiday and how it has become this iconic American thing. And, uh, and I know some of y'all are scratching your heads going, well, wait a minute, we've got some history stuff. Yep, yep, but we're going to get all to that. So seeing how this episode is going to be exploring some pretty heavy ideology and some of that centering around the Christian faith, I reached out to the best holy man I know. Joining me. In the studio today is a gentleman I have known my whole life. He's been my pastor since I was six. He moonlights as an orthopedic tech at the local hospital in Battle Creek, Michigan. He's a mentor, he's my friend, and he's the man that I call Dad. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you my father, Mike McGlynn. Dad, welcome to the Bar of Questionable Life Choices and Why Whiskey. Um, it is a place that I have uh, really looked forward to being because Questionable Life Choices is my credo. I don't know about the holy part. I, I bristle at that. I, I don't think I'm, I, in fact, I think I'm the most irreverent person you know. <laughs> well, maybe, but you know, we're, we're not going to get into those stories just yet. Oh, okay. Th- those might come with the whiskey as we go on. But, uh, but yeah, so, so looking at Christmas as a whole, uh, the, a lot of weird stuff and a lot of uh, very, interesting thoughts and and how the holiday has come to be and and kind of where the religious roots have kind of taken hold and and how some of the the pagan rituals kind of transcended into those 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 holy days are you know what is what is looked at as as a holy day but we're going to get into all of that stuff and more but before we do here on why whiskey we 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 whiskey we whiskey a lot so I have sent my dad uh, some whiskey, and seeing how he is a, a good Irishman, we are going to be starting off with some, some wonderful Irish whiskeys. So, Dad, if you could grab that, uh, that first one there. Yes. And uh, so what we are starting with is Napogue Castle 12-year. So single, uh, it is a malted barley, uh, triple pot still, 12 years old, beautiful, just delicate, sweet, 
Uh, it gives you all of those those hard cookie notes that come from uh, from Irish whiskey. You know, like those those uh, that the Pepperidge Farm cookies that like like that are they're like super stiff and crumble. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So that's every time. That's that's kind of what I get. Comes in at 83 ABV, so uh, 86 proof. Little little light. Uh, Irish whiskeys tend to be a little bit on the lighter side, just because they they really like to focus on the product that they that they pull off the stills and and uh i thought the coloring was was interesting is the is the second one an irish whiskey as well yes okay the um because that was more amber this wouldn't really look more like a urine specimen as far as color is concerned <laughs> uh, something somebody that is not hydrated urine specimen that is um, but the, uh, that so the color of the second one seemed much more appealing to me as far as coloring goes. But Irish whiskeys are so delicate; they're just so they're they're very light and they're very uh, floral's not the right word. Uh, kind of like a like a light grassy. Uh, scotches are super grassy, like earthy kind of tone. But I with Irish whiskeys always get that that sweet kind of um, just uh, just light grassy. You know, it does. It's not like fruit flavors, but they're they're more like earth tones that are that are sweeter earth tones. Like uh, if you could taste what uh, the forest smells like the morning after it rains, like that's kind of where like how I would have to put a descriptor on that. Now, th- this may be something that just is uh, weird to me, but um, the f- the first swallow just th- I guess it prepares my mouth because the second swallow tastes so different to me. Yeah, and that's uh, when you're when you're drinking whiskey. That's why you, when you're starting, if you're going to be tasting different stuff, you want to go from uh, low proof to high proof. And the first taste of a whiskey is always going to be just your tongue getting ready to accept the distillate, right? Because it's shock. Like here's all this this alcohol, and you know these things kind of come in, and um, your tongue doesn't really know what to do with it. So anytime that you you try whiskey there's a lot of people that take that first sip and go oh my god and and then they stop and it's like no 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 that's just let your mouth get used to it for a sec mm-hmm. blow it out kind of savor see if you can pick anything out that first time and then once you go in the real tasting of the whiskey happens in that second and third sip as you kind of progress down and and you get a lot more of the flavor and the notes of what the whiskey really is after your mouth kind of realizes it's not going to die and starts doing its job the, the other thing, too, is I always look for the aftertaste because that, to me, that's what, what makes it good is when it's out of my mouth and and I have a chance to really just kind of get my, the inside of my mouth and just, you know, tasting that and thinking about what that tastes. It's, it's the aftertaste that, to me, defines whether a whiskey is, is good or not because it's like, oh, okay, now there is a taste that I want to stay in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Unfortunately, I'll... there it's like, oh, please, how can I get this out of my mouth as quickly as possible? You know, <laughs> even though I've swallowed it, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, you know. My dad had the opportunity to share some uh, some bookers with me a few years back uh, when we were in New York, and uh, and that experience did not go well. Um, I, I remember a lot of coughing and and uh, and weird <laughs> weird guttural noises coming from my my father as he was trying to put bookers down. But this is a this is a lot more easy sipper and uh, and the pogue is is really great. I've really and enjoyed. Where is, it, where is it made? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but where is it made? It is. So it's made out of the uh, the pogue castle distillery, which is located in Ireland. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> so, so, so to be careful. Figure yeah. you don't know what what's what in Ireland, so they just give you the country. Yeah, it's, like, it's uh, right. it's in it's in Ireland. Just uh, just just know okay. it's, it's, yeah, it's it's in Ireland. There you go. All right. Uh, I will. <laughs> I'll have a link and uh, and a little better description in the show notes uh, for those who want to go check it out and read. Uh, also, you can kind of see their their list of products in there as well. All right, but uh, we are talking uh, whiskey. But man, let's let's get in on this this Christmas thing. You ready? Sure. All right. So Christmas in America is kind of what we're focusing on because Christmas outside of America doesn't really exist. Uh, parts and pieces of the Christmas that we know existed, and and parts and pieces are. Uh, we're going to show how this puzzle kind of gets put together are what we see now and today as Christmas. Christmas actually got a really rocky start in America. Uh, celebrating Christmas was in in New England, was actually admonished. Uh, you, you were given a fine if you celebrated, if you if you slacked off or you you enjoyed the day. The Puritans did not like Christmas because they associated that day, the 25th of December, with uh, some other uh, pagan rituals, and we'll talk about those in a little bit. So you have these, uh, these, this father-son duo in the early uh, 17th century, mid-17th century, called Increase and Cotton Mather. Now, those names may sound familiar to some of my listeners. We talked about them quite a bit when we did the Salem Witch Trial episode because they were also at the forefront of the whole Salem Witch Trial thing. They were, they were the guys that were there. Actually, I believe it was... Increase, who witnessed, they said, uh, you know, that if you were possessed uh, or, or whatever by witchcraft, you could not recite the Lord's Prayer from front to back. And the guy, I forget the guy's name, who was hanging in the gallows, recited it perfectly. And, uh, and I believe Increase was, uh, or not Increase Cotton, was like, uh, sorry, drop him. <laughs> so uh, these kind of we 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 share that story to kind of paint the picture of of what these guys were doing in in the Northeast. Uh, eventually, though, Cotton would after his dad passes, Cotton would start to soften his view on Christmas, and then we start seeing that's when we start seeing more and more celebrations and stuff kind of come into play, and not so much in New England, but as this. This negative view of Christmas lightens up. Things uh, in the still in the Northeast area start to start to get a little loose. Um, and I don't know how everybody's been following this, but the Christmas and, and we need to put that in quote marks uh, for the folks that are listening because they they may not be uh, familiar with that. They may be young enough so the the only culture they know is the culture of the last 30 years or the last 50 years which doesn't if you're thinking that the puritans were opposed to the way we do christmas now well they would be they were opposed to just about everything but what what kind of followed them over uh, from england was uh I, did they, is it is that where they called it the wassailing yes uh, was in england Right, and and Wassling, actually, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that too. Uh, okay. So they would, it's where they would kind of go. Uh, it was revelry, uh, right. usually usually intoxication. When's the last time you used revelry to describe something that you saw? Oh, uh, never. I, okay, okay. Yeah. So what was it really? It was like Mardi Gras. Yeah, okay. it, it was. Yeah, revelry was. is not a good word for our for our culture. Mardi Gras. It was more like Mardi more like Mardi Gras. Gras. Uh, yeah, less uh, sans sans the, the floats. Yeah, sans the the boobs and the beads. I I think. Yeah. Too. Yeah. <laughs> no beads. No yeah. boobs. No yeah. floats. Seven layers of corsets were really hard to get undone. <laughs> 
Yeah, so so they were. They were super concerned about keeping people focused on, you know, uh, centered in faith and all this other stuff. And and they did not any looseness of of those that strict moral code, which is interesting because they actually they got overridden because uh, England actually the the charter for Salem or or, or oh, what did they call it? Uh, I forget what the name of the the company that, that the Puritans were running, uh, England came back and, and did not like renounce their charter uh, and came in and for a few years actually started reintegrating Christmas into into everything until until they took that charter back over. And that was in the early 1690s. So right after they took the charter back from England, they shut Christmas down again. I think it was like a total of seven years. England allowed Christmas to come back and parties and wassling and all that stuff. And then right after they took it back, shut it down, and that's when you saw all the the Salem witch trials kind of kind of kick off right into I think it was 1692, and then all that bounced off. Cutting off of the wassailing, the the England, you know, in the snow Mardi Gras kind of stuff. The, the Puritans were impacting that as well, or or some of the uh, more severe. Uh, religious sects that that wasn't just something that was a, a secular kind of law thing uh, that was going on, but that it, right. I, I, am I getting that right? I, I, yeah. I, I'm fuzzy historically. So yeah. Uh, uh, a lot of shaming and a lot of uh, uh, what was the word? Uh, I mean, they, they were admonishments is, yeah. is really the best yeah. word to, to kind of put on that is, is that you were, if you celebrated, you were, you were, I mean, uh, other than the actual, legal like fines and all that other stuff that you got you kind of you kind of hit up you know you got shut down so so christmas doesn't start real well in america and then it, it then it kind of gets kind of gets weird it, it it has this rebirth christmas kind of takes a back seat to everything during the revolution obviously we're not doing a lot of christmas stuff when uh <laughs> when we're, we're fighting the brits hang on a sec one of the things that that fascinated me about the Puritan thing before we leave that is that there was no way on God's green earth that the Puritans were going to allow a day off for Christmas. Yeah. And, and and that was that was fascinating that that, you know, there wasn't there wasn't this. OK, listen, you, you get to have the day off. No, that, you know, we talk about the Protestant work work ethic. Um, it was. It, we I don't think we appreciate what what they were all about as far as that goes. But there was no way they were going to allow people to have a day to do nothing or vacate. I mean, they were intense about that. And that was I, I think that was part of their thing about that is that it it impacted work and you had to work. That was your worth. Your worth was your work. Um, you know, and if you didn't work, you were, um, slothful and, and that just wasn't acceptable either from a religious or moral standpoint from, from their point of view. And, and Mather actually had a list that, a naughty list, right? What, um, Stephen Niesenbaum, uh, termed a, a blacklist, right? And in his book, uh, he says, quote, it included partying on Sunday evenings and even during the intermission between the two Sabbath day sermons, they had to go to church twice, right? Now continuing on in the quote, uh, running horse races on such solemn occasions as funerals, training days, and public lectures, turning weddings into drunken revels, and holding corn huskings that were little more than an excuse to riot, end quote. So he, you know, it, Mather, the Mathers were not fun people. Like, uh, you know, you were, you were working or you were churching, and that was it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And even when you were wedding, you were churching. 
Yeah, that's yeah. right. That, that was there, there were only two things to do. I'm and, making all these words, all these words, verbs. Oh, that's hard to say. <laughs> including procreation, it's really amazing that that there were Puritan children that that happened. It had to be a mistake, you know. As you're going to the outhouse, you bump into each other, and then all of a sudden somebody conceives, you know. Um, <laughs> you wash your underwear together. Damn it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, just uh, work in and church, and that was uh, that was it. Yeah, so that, that that period of time was was not a good time for for Christmas, even though it still did occur, and there were still things, and it was generating out of the younger population. Younger, you know, obviously were. The rebelling and just being young kids that are uh, doing whatever. That was the, the the site, though. But, you know, young kids repressed, right? There's enough stories, you know, uh, Footloose, I think, is a, a probably a, a good picture of that, what happens when you, you know, repressed young kids. They just want to start randomly dancing and singing at weird places and times. So uh, mm. so, so I can see that happening in, <laughs> in the 1690s in, in early Puritan America. But so it doesn't get there. So here, so now we're kind of limping through that part is so it doesn't have a real good hard set yet and and now we're in the revolution and once the revolution's done we have this new country and now you start seeing things kind of come out and christmas starts taking a hold but it doesn't really start taking a hold like you think it's finding its birthplace through literature in his book the battle for christmas Stephen nissenbaum kind of points out that that christmas in america really took hold through the, the venue of literature and and how it was written and these things that came across and, and we're gonna we'll tie all this in together at the end but it, it's really kind of amazing to see where all these things kind of start off so when we think about Christmas we always think about back in the old days back in the good old days the good old times and were those times what we really remember them to be Christmas in America has always been about I would say commercialism slash consumerism. We, we are a consuming nation. Uh, and, and in this period where Christmas kind of pops up, uh, this, this weird time between 1810 and 1830, where it starts becoming like a real thing, we are, we're, as Americans, we're sucking down every single thing we can get our hands on. Mm-hmm. We're, mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're drunk, literally every day that we have consumed every person in America is consuming six gallons of liquor a year uh, at this point. So obviously babies aren't consuming that much, but when you do the math, that means the adults are consuming just that much more <laughs> per capita mm-hmm. consumption during this period of time is, is almost at six gallons per person, which is insane. So we start just taking in all of these things. And really here is this this just consumer things, consumerism that starts taking hold of our, our nation and, and Christmas gets rolled into this, you know, this, this boulder that's rolling down the mountain during this time frame. But we have this weird emotional connection to this holiday. So it, it, the holiday to us, it seems very, very unique. But when we go back and we, we pick apart Christmas, you know, 50, 100 year increments all the way back, it really, it really is not that different obviously you know uh how we uh get the gifts and then you know how we present the gifts and how the gifts went from being not even really gifts they went from being like uh fruit that was hanging on the christmas tree back in germany it wasn't a christmas tree back then it was you know the the paradise tree as we talked about in the in part one right uh but the fruit and vegetables all turned into presents that were hanging on the tree and the presents got too big so now they had to go underneath the tree well how did mm-hmm. they get underneath the tree 
Hello, Santa, as we talked about in part two. So, you know, so there's there's this weird kind of like trickle down how it goes. Um, but we all it's, it's amazing how we all have that emotional connection. And I think everybody has said, man, I remember Christmas back when I was a kid and it was totally different. Was it or are you totally different? Has Christmas been the same, but your perspective has changed? What do you think? I think it's I think it's more of a personal perspective. I'm not sure that in the last 50 years, I think there was there was a great deal of of change and upheaval prior to the 50 years. But I think the last oh, maybe 50 years is actually too long, maybe maybe 30 years. It's been fairly static in, I think, the mainstream of American life. Pockets here and there, maybe not, but but in the mainstream overall, gen, you know, generalizing, and we should probably never do that. But I think as we moved more from an agrarian culture into an industrial culture, I think that's where we saw a greater change because there was more disposable income, there was more disposable time. Although it's interesting, and and uh, Nissbaum, it, is that how he pronounces his last name, Nissbaum? Nissenbaum. Nissenbaum. Okay. Um, it's interesting because he points out that in, in England, the slaughtering was done, the, the agricultural stuff was done. So this was the time there was free time. This was the time to cut loose. This was the time to, you know, eat great meat because there really wasn't a good way to save it. So you might as well just, you know, get your fill and you've been working for the last nine months and now there's nothing to do. So you cut loose and, and that's where the, the craziness started to come from. It was the time of the year where you couldn't do all the agrarian things and you could party without having to worry about whether you had to get up and milk the cows in the morning. So, so I, I, I think that as we moved as a nation from agrarian to industrialization, I think that probably gave us some of our biggest changes. And then I think they've been uh, refined is probably not the right word, intensified deepened uh, their their grip on us, uh, especially from a commercial, you know, commercialism standpoint. Um, I, I don't think we ever had a time in the scale that we have now. Uh, you know, now, if if you as a business don't make that you're the nut they referred to over uh, over Christmas time, then you're wondering whether you're going to make it through the next year. Um, because that everybody just, you know, we've got to make our money between uh, the end of October and the first of the year. And if we don't, then it, this is not going to be a good year. So now there's there's this huge push from a commercialization standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, merchandising standpoint, all of that stuff. There's a bunch of people that are really trying to make it happen so that they can stay in business one more year. You're absolutely right. And what is the focus of that advertising in those presents, right? It's it's not uh, you and me, you know, the old dudes. It's the kids. It's our kids. And that's kind of where you see Christmas make this the biggest change, I think, in, in early American history, where it went from this Mardi Gras-esque party, because we got nothing else to do, to... Uh, how do we how do we make it? How do we get it off the streets and quit being so crazy and and rebel? Like you know, uh, mm -hmm. we we then shift our focus to to the home. We go from we go from a party out in the streets to now we've got to make it about the kids. And there's there's this gradual 
this this weird and it, it's all constructed again through literature and, and pictures and stories where it takes the the families you know and it makes Christmas now the focus of Christmas is not celebrating that there's nothing to do let's eat the good meat let's drink the good drink let's do all these things it's no we've now we've got to freaking we, we got to chill this out and calm this down so how we can do that we're going to make this about the kids and when you read uh, I forget what her name is she was one of the biggest uh, Christmas writers of the period oh man shit i'll remember it later but so she she writes you know these stories of these celebrations in the home centered around kids and making the kids these things but in in actuality in her journals and her personal writings her christmases looked absolutely nothing like that so she here she is she was constructing this uh you know this this visual but in reality, that, that's not what was being practiced at the time. So it, it lends to... Now, I'm not saying that this one lady wrote a book and now we have Christmas like we have. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not, I don't want to make that assertion. But you can see where there was influence to make it uh, about this crazy party and then shift that, that, that focus into, into your living room and about the kids because now... And now our, our consumerism are, kind of takes over because we got to get our kids the, the stuff. Right. Yeah. See, you know, the, the smiling faces on Christmas and I'll be the first one to tell you that's Christmas is not my favorite holiday. But seeing the reaction from my children when they open up that that box and it's whatever the thing is, was the thing that they they super wanted. And there's just a, it's a few moments of pure joy on their face. It, it makes me it makes me happy. You know what I mean? Like I, I get uh, and, and I think that's that's not a unique feeling as as parents and adults, you know, and, and that's kind of where that that shift kind of moved in and, and Nissenbaum kind of points that out page 63 in his book he says uh where is it uh he says uh this quote it was those children who became the temporary centers of attention and deference uh at america or excuse me <laughs> at christmas and the joy and gratitude on their faces and in their voices as they opened their presents was a vivid recreation of the exchange of gifts for goodwill that had long constituted the emotional heart of the christmas season end quote so, so we pull it out of the streets and we put it in the home. And now it's, now it's about the kids. Well, to follow um, his logic, what, what we're doing or, or what was being done, historically speaking, and bringing it into the home and getting it focused on the kids was the, that, that revelry was the poor, um, the poor people going and asking the rich people for food and drink. Uh, it was really kind of more like Halloween in, you know, the whole trick-or-treat kind of thing. So here now we take that that concept that was part and parcel of the wassailing and all that kind of stuff where you were going around and asking for food and asking for drink and you were asking from rich people. Now we have the rich people, the parents, uh, are now placating the children. I want to be careful. That's a loaded term. I understand that. But they're taking care of the poor waifs, their children, by giving them gifts. So so the pattern that has been established for a long time in that it's been domesticated, uh, in quote marks, it's been domesticated, but it's still happening that the, the rich are giving to the poor. Uh, in this case, the parents with the children. I j- just, a, a th- I, I'm not stating that as, you know, this is w- exactly what's happening. I would love to hear uh, Nissenbaum talk about that. I, he doesn't, I, I did, at least I haven't seen in his book where he does, but I'd be interested to hear him respond to that. 
I I think he. I would too back up that. So uh, if if he happens to to trip across this, uh, Mr. Niesenbaum, we would love to speak with you. We have questions, lots of questions, and we need That's your right. answers. And I <laughs> want to be in on that show if that <laughs> yeah. happens. Tell Absolutely. You. Absolutely. So yes, it it is it is still that same construct, but with the big difference being um, with the wassling stuff, it, it you're not paying the poor to get out of your home. Right. You're you know what I mean? Although there is that similarity in yeah. in, in the role reversal. Right. The rich give to the poor mm-hmm. uh, that 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 parallel does exist. But it is it, it is totally adjusted and shifted from again, because Wassily happened. It was that it was that outside to inside. So we stopped giving to yes. the people who came to the door and started focusing on the poor people that lived in our home. And that was our children. Right. As you know what I mean? And I, I would agree with your how, how you put that together. Absolutely. Uh, but I think it was, you know, it, there was there was that similar track. But but how how it got there is where I get I'm, I'm fascinated. You yeah. know, what was yeah. the what was the tool? And that was the question I was asking as I was going through the research and the reading and all this stuff I was like, OK, what was the tool? And the tool was literature. Yeah. You know, and that's that's where that's where that big shift came from. And and it's fascinating how how it had that impact. And we see we saw that with the Christmas tree. You know, it was one little town in Germany that was really doing the Christmas tree thing. Mm -hmm. A dude goes and visits the town, writes a big book about it. Book goes out. A guy from America visits, meets the guy, reads the book, sees the tree, brings that back. You know, people like we we talked about in part one. They think it was the the German immigrants that came, but the Christmas tree showed up in America ten years before the the big rush of German immigrants came over. It was a whole decade yeah. beforehand. So so it, again, it's one of those things. How did it get here? And and the the vassal that <laughs> delivered it was was literature. So I, right. I just I find that interesting. But let's so this wassling thing. Let's let's talk about that for for a little bit because <laughs> it, it, super fun. Like I I could get in if Christmas caroling was like this. I could do it. I don't sing, uh, but let me tell you, I could go to my neighbor's house and just make a lot of really obnoxious noise and yeah. to get them to like for them to like get me to stop. Uh, if they came out and offered me really good booze, oh, I would stop in a heartbeat. And uh, and then I would just go to the next house, be like, do you have good booze? I'm going to sing really badly unless you do. You know, I right, I right. can get behind that kind of party. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's actually not not a party. You're just uh, holding up your neighbors for alcohol. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, when you read some of these accounts, that's what it was. These dudes wouldn't just knock yeah, at the door. And sing badly. They would welcome themselves into your yeah. home and sit in your living room and be like, uh, where's the good stuff? You know, <laughs> give me but give me the good stuff. Was, and until you gave it to them, they, they wouldn't leave. Yeah. And I, and I was not I was not aware of that until I, I read uh, The Battle for Christmas. They, they, they were invading homes. That, but at, at an at some point, they there they were welcomed. And then that started to wear off and people started to resist that. And that's where we get things where it was really kind of a trick or treat. Either give us a treat or things won't go well for you this night, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So there was one example uh, of these guys got turned out and uh, and they were teenagers, late teens, early 20s. Uh, and, you know, pummeled the house with rocks, breaking windows and stuff like that because they weren't given the pear liqueur that had been made from this gentleman's uh, pear orchard. 
you know, so it's like, oh, my gosh, uh, that, you know, that's taking it obviously a little bit too far. But when you're three sheets to the wind, what's too far? You, you don't know at that point in time. So you just do whatever you want to do at that point. And that that centered that that whole thing centered in uh, inside a, in New York City. You know, uh, there, there were some instances of of that happening in Philly. Um, but that, that was kind of like where, where it got really crazy and out of, out of hand was downtown. So you'd have all these, these poor Irish folk coming across, you know, carrying on the tradition, you know, uh, the poor mm-hmm. looking for the good stuff from the rich and, and not stopping, you know, and, and then that, the, the violence kind of came on and, and that's where that, uh, the big shift from, from outside to inside went. So now, now we've got to socially construct this thing to get these, cause they're sick and tired of people, you know, destroying their homes and grabbing all the good stuff. And then get, it's getting out of hand. So now, yeah. now we have to do it, you know, and not through enforcement because that just creates riots and everybody's drunk. So nobody's really listening to the cops anyway. So we gotta, we gotta, you know, so we've got to build this thing and get all these people to espouse this tradition. How do we make a tradition? Uh, which, you know, and the wassailing is an, a, a picture of what happened back in Rome, back in a long, long time ago. And this is, uh, we're, we're going to kind of shift into looking where, where wassailing kind of started uh, during the Roman festival of, and I always say this wrong, uh, Saturnalia, I think yeah, is how it's pronounced. I think so so. There, there was this huge party, massive party, a party that I, I again, hey, I, I, I'd get in on this where uh, slaves became masters, masters became slaves, mm-hmm. uh, drinking, eating, carrying on, debauchery, just craziness everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, so that role reversal is, is the key part, right? Because the wassailing was all about you know, switching the roles, and, and now the, the poor are becoming the rich because the rich are giving to the poor, and there's, all this, you know, there's, there's that whole thing there. So, so here we have the Romans, and, and this is a, a pagan ritual, and then we see, uh, at an about in the the mid uh, three, uh, how do you put this? Like three yeah. hundredth yeah. <laughs> the yeah. century, uh, fourth century, mid fourth yeah. century, mid fourth century. Yeah. So, so here we there, there's this big shift, and uh, it's it, it starts with Constantine, and Constantine says, okay, hey, we're done with this pagan stuff. We we need Jesus. Jesus is our thing. Here we go. So, so now we have this big shift, and and that's where we see the the religious side of Christmas kind of come into play. And so, let's Christmas has has now become a part. And in, in our, our house, growing up as a kid, you know, the holiday centered around uh, the birth of Christ and oh, and the events. My heart's going faster now. You're talking pretty close to home. I okay. know. I know. I know. Hang. All right. Yeah. Yeah. We're. Yeah, we will let you Jesus out here in just a second. <laughs> No, no, we're talking about uh, what's it like at home, and it's like, oh, no, what dirty laundry is going to get hung out now? Oh, that comes in part two. (laughs) Uh, So here we have this thing. So the folks over at ZME Science say that the Romans had, quote, transformed Saturnalia from a frat party marathon into a meek celebration of the birth of Christ, end quote. So that's where we get the birth of Christ in December kind of thing, right? Because... And and this is where I'm I'm calling on my my holy man here. Uh, when when was Jesus actually born? Well, uh, guesstimation, if, guesstimation. I know nobody knows the exact date, but there there are some uh, Bible scholars that will point point to uh, specific references in the Gospels, particularly uh, Luke and Matthew, 
and through those indicators uh, say that more likely mid-September to mid-October, you know, that kind of range uh, as far as his actual birth. And, and, and I, I've looked at some of that, uh, and, I, and I think it's, it's reasonably accurate that given those, those textual uh, indicators that that is probably correct. Which I love. I, I, I love that fact that, and, and that kind of goes into the, the whole, you know, we, we celebrate it, but it didn't even happen at that time. And the, the celebration of the birth of Christ happened because the Romans wanted to stop the, what the, the folks at ZMB Science called a, a frat party marathon, end quote, um, <laughs> you know, uh, to, to kind of chill things out. And with that, the, the, the parallel you know, with the Roman Empire, and then fast forward to 19th century America, you know, the party's getting loose and crazy. We need to chill it out. So what do we do? We need to focus on now. Now, the focus didn't go from a pagan ritual to Jesus. It went from, you know, party and, and insane behavior to, uh, you know, bringing it into your living room with with presents and kids and family stuff. Right. So yeah. but the, the whole the whole celebration of of the birth of Christ, because I remember growing up that that was, that was the focus. And that was, uh, uh, Christmas morning. One of our traditions was, you know, you would read dad, the, the account of, mm-hmm. I think it was, it was at a Luke. It was the, the Luke account, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and I always, I remember that because it was the same one that, uh, what's his name? Not Schroeder. Uh, who's the, the Charlie Brown, uh, Linus, like he quotes in the, it's Christmas, Charlie Brown. Right. Uh, and, and it was always so funny because I, I would, you would be reading this, but in my head, I would hear Linus's voice, you know, as, as you would read that same, that same passage. And so, so it was, it was focused in, and for the longest time. And, and I think in a lot of places, you know, you, you see it all the time. Jesus is the reason for the season. And, and where did that all come from? You know, cause he, he wasn't actually born there. And then looking into that even more so, you know, there's, there's a few scholars that have said that that was the time, you know, Jesus was born in September, but by the time like the three Kings actually showed up, it was about that time frame somewhere in, you know, in that realm of November to January, I think, uh, by the yeah. time they actually showed up. Probably more uh, toward the January thing. Again, remember, we're probably talking uh, lunar months uh, more than solar months that, although I think it was uh, Caesar Augustus that brought about the the solar calendar, I think, if I remember right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so, so uh, yeah, I, I, th- that seems to be uh, beginning of January, beginning to middle of January, the, the Kings came. But again, not, and probably not within the immediate months. Remember, the, the, the biblical text talks about children two years and under. So it doesn't mean that they were there uh, three months or four months after the birth. It was probably a year and four months after the birth. So, um, so they, wait a second. Are you there. saying that, that Jesus was potentially born? If, if Jesus was born in September, like, which, which I believe okay. is, is fairly accurate, that, that the kings probably showed up a year and a half later. Oh, okay. Almost, okay. A year, almost a year and a half later. Gotcha. Um, in beginning of January time. Right. And that's a, a, that area, that part of history is not something I've, I've spent a lot of time uh, really kind of mess. I haven't messed with a lot of the, the ancient history stuff yet. So, so the, right. the big switch from, from lunar to solar and, and all that other, uh, who created right. that. So the, uh, and I believe it's the Julian calendar, right? So it'd be 
Yeah, Julius Caesar. Yeah, Julius Caesar. Yeah, yeah that's right. Not Caesar Augustus, Julius Caesar. Right. You know, the other thing, you know, we talk about Constantine and Constantine plunking the religious Christmas observance near the solstice. I mean, the solstice was a big event for for all religions because you you have, you know, everything was governed by the sun and by the moon and all that kind of stuff. And and up until uh, changing to a solar calendar, everything was, was lunar. So you had all the lunar things that were going on. I mean, it was just, it was all part of that, those kind of religious rituals. Um, so so they want to they wanna do something and they want to kind of, uh, if I could use the word, redeem the celebration for... Uh, the religious purposes. I, I think, and again, I'm speculating here, pure speculation, but I think that because at this point in time, the vast majority of people that were in Christendom, that were part of Christendom, were now Gentiles. At the beginning, it was mostly a Jewish crowd. And and then as, as the gospel moved out into the Gentiles, the Gentiles started to overwhelm, and there was a lot of tension in that, in the Gentiles coming in and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, even if they knew that it was probably around September, October, you know, there's two major Jewish holidays in September. Um, let's not mess with those. Let's get away from those and 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 plunk it down in in a different part of the year. Uh, and here's a good one because here's where everybody's just, you know, going off their nut, um, having a ball. And so let's try to bring a little, you know, calm and peace and moral proclivity there, you know, moral proclivity. Yeah, right. I, I yeah. like that. <laughs> I put those two together. Yeah. But, uh, no, no, it was no, it was a great combination because again, that that parallel to you know to to fourth century Rome and nineteenth century America, it's pretty much. Uh, I, although not looking at the the holiday, you know, it's it's kind of getting things. You know, we gotta we gotta settle that down, and we've gotta we gotta we're gonna stop doing this this crazy stuff, and we're gonna celebrate this in in toning all the the wild and crazy down by making it this and then we see that same thing so that that's always been uh i i, I think it, kind of cool and and britannica.com has this to say about the the whole thing it says quote the church in rome began formally celebrating christmas on december 25th in 336 during the reign of emperor constantine mm -hmm. as constantine had made christianity the effective religion of the empire some mm -hmm. have speculated that choosing this date had the political motive of weakening the established pagan celebrations. End quote. Uh, so, so there's there's that. Like it was the the big shutdown, and I've I've always been uh, amazed because it's it's a lot of the the religious overtones. And and again, um, I ask the question why uh, all the time about pretty much everything, and where where did those get started, and how did that take a seat if. If in fact, and, and this has nothing to do with American history or anything like that, you know, this was this was way 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 back in the day. So that's kind of where the religious side of Christmas kind of kind of came in, as far as the the Judeo Christian uh, celebration of of the holiday. And mm -hmm. I, I, I kind of found that that interesting. What are you you got? What else you got? Yeah, I see your. Well, uh, the, the, it's I, I find it interesting, and as you were talking, I, I started to think about this. Um, with Constantine declaring that it is now the Holy Roman Empire, <laughs> um, that everybody who's who lives in Rome is a Christian, 
is really not unlike uh, some of the the way people think about America. Oh, I'm a Christian. I was born in America. So so it's like America is like the 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 next iteration of of the Holy Roman Empire because if you're born in America, you're a Christian. So the assumption is is that. Um, because this is a Christian nation, and I'm putting that in quote marks, and that is not my opinion, but that is the view of some, um, that these things uh, are, are, what do I want to say, are, are happening because uh, we're losing that distinction. And I don't, I'm not sure that we ever really had that distinction. So when we see the things going on in uh, the United States that were a, this rabble-rousing uh, approach to Christmas in a quote-unquote Christian nation. So here we have the resurrection, not to be punny, of of uh, the religious Christmas to try and curtail that in much the same way Constantine was trying to do that within the Roman Empire. I, I just find there's there's a lot of parallels there, and I, I'm just fascinated by it because I've never thought about it before until I read uh, Nissenbaum's uh, book. Yeah, I, uh, I I'm hoping we don't don't share the same fate as the Roman Empire because uh, that would be <laughs> that would yeah. be shitty. <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, I was uh, that was one of the things that always always kind of struck me is how how it are was. Are you calling Canadians barbarians that are going to come down from the north and destroy us? Is I, you? I would never. No, I, the Canadians I know are wonderful. I mean, we're honestly, if we're going to really look at it, we're more Canadian than we are Irish. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I mean you know, Canada. Yeah, like, Canada. we're not going <laughs> to. Who's saying that? That was um, that was in South Park. Yeah, that's right. South Park. <laughs> yeah, I, I've always remembered that song. I don't know why. Probably because all of my dad's people came from Canada. So, uh, yeah, you you watching uh, Longer, Louder and Uncut uh, would be an interesting experience. Uh just because of how profane that, that movie is. <laughs> I'm getting a visual of you watching that. I, I don't know how you you managed to sit through it to get to that point, but uh, yeah. Okay. yeah, right on. Well, well, hey, I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take a break real quick. I want you guys to go grab a clean glass, come drink some more whiskey with us, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, some, other, some other topics about how America kind of became the hub for modern-day Christmas. We'll be back in just a second. All right, folks, welcome back. We're talking about Christmas. Uh, I have my father, Mike McGlynn, uh, here to kind of be my my holy man representative to, to kind of talk me through some of this stuff. So before we get going on into the next Christmas topic, we're going, he's chuckling. I called him a holy man. I think that's twice now. He, he He's giggling over there. Um, it's actually four times. I'm keeping a track oh. mark here, you know. All right, well, uh, don't let it go to your head there, old man. Okay. <laughs> old man. See, now there we go. Get behind. You All know? right. <laughs> All right, so whiskey number two. Uh, Dad, if you want to grab that for me. Got it. All right. So I recently had the incredible opportunity to sit down with uh, Derek. He is the global uh, brand ambassador for Powers Whiskey. 
and I asked him to talk to me about his whiskey, and he did. So what we are going to drink now is Powers Whiskey. Uh, it's their three-swallow uh, whiskey, and, and I've got all the stats and data on it, but the story behind this was beautiful. So here you have John Powers, who's this, the, the huge whiskey maker. He's one of the three families that saved Irish whiskey. Uh, a great story there. I've got actually a, an episode on that, uh, so you can go listen to the, the history of Irish whiskey as well. The story of their three swallows. He made this fantastic whiskey, and when he would go to the parties, he would bring this whiskey in the flask. How he would get to the party was a stagecoach or a, a you know a, a some horse drawn carriage and you had the driver you had the assistant driver and then you had the coachman in the in the very back so what he would do because he was always so wonderful to his employees like historically he would go grab the good whiskey and he would bring back three swallows of this beautiful whiskey for his three uh carriage crewmen and and that was that was Absolutely incredible. This comes out of the Middleton Distillery in the County Cork. Uh, Middleton is familiar to a lot of my listeners because we drink a lot of whiskey out of Middleton. Redbreast comes out of there. Jameson comes out of there. Uh, Middleton itself comes out of there. And and talking with Derek, I asked, you know, how, so here's this one thing and what, what makes you guys unique from coming out of this same distillery. And he said a phrase that was, was incredible because I, asking about, the character of the barrels, the rickhouse, and the environment that, that is Ireland, the, the kind of wet and cold environment, and how that plays on aging. And he's like, we're not too worried about that because Powers Whiskey is, quote, a celebration of distillation, end quote. And that is poetic. And coming from a beautiful Irish accent was even more so. Like, I was like, oh, my God, for real? Like, dude. Uh, so it is gorgeous and, and Irish whiskey, I think that probably captures it so much. And the big difference between Irish whiskey and American whiskey is we have to go into a brand new barrel every time. So a lot of the characteristics of the barrel is where we get our flavor profiles for whiskey that's made in America, uh, particularly bourbon and your rise. Irish whiskey is using a slew of casks. I think this is finished in sherry casks, uh, but it goes into old bourbon casks that are already used and they're So they're not stressing about how the whiskey, the distillate's going to interact with the barrel. They want the distillate to be quality going in and it just letting it sit there and chill out. Uh, this particular whiskey is anywhere from five to seven years old. Uh, 10% of it, uh, so it's blended in, 10% of the whiskey is finished in cherry barrels. Uh, he called it the regular occasion sipper, beautifully layered. And and it is, it truly, truly is. This is, uh, it, it is one of my favorite Irish whiskeys, um, Right, I'd say right next to, to Redbreast, it is absolutely gorgeous. So, so here we go. Uh, let's grab. Are you ready? So this one, this is that little darker. You see the the color difference between yeah. the two. Yeah. So, yeah. I, that, that was when I when I pulled them out. I was like, oh wait, there's some a different in color there. Yep. And then the nose itself is is very different uh, from from the Pogue. And if you, you kind of smell what I get, and and again, one of the wonderful things about whiskey is that it's it's unique to everybody. So what I knows and taste is not going to be what anybody else knows and tastes. But I get this like this this gooey sweet dough, kind of like if you're making some sort of sweet bread. It's not like cooked yet, you know. Like it's just this mm-hmm. this gooey, really just wonderful uh, texture of 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 whiskey that just kind of sits there and, and you get that good dark color. I think there's a, the sherry has, has some play there with the, the coloring, 
uh, because it's it's younger than the Napogue is, but it's a it's a lighter a lighter color, which I, I find to be incredibly interesting. It it is the uh, I'm sorry. Is it nose when we talk about what it smells like initially? Yes. I don't, I don't have the lingo. Um, the first one we did seemed the the Pogue seemed much sharper. Um, do you spell Pogue P O A G? No, it's P O U G E. It's it's Napogue K. Hang on. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's spelled K N A P P O G U E. Okay. Um, because your grandfather Lowry's nickname was Pogue. Just to. <laughs> All right. Everybody called him Pogue Lowry. I I don't know why. I never did. I called him Grandpa. Was that um, right? <laughs> um, this one is is softer, smoother in in smelling it. It it comes across not quite as sharp. I think is the word I want to use. Yeah. So it's uh it's triple distilled, uh, similar to the other one that we had. It is a blend of malted and unmalted barley, though, and I think that might have a bit to do with uh, a little bit on the, the texture itself of, mm-hmm. of the whiskey. And then the finishing, I think, in, in the sherry really kind of brings about that good change. That color is gorgeous. Yeah, it really yeah. is. I, this one, I don't taste throughout my mouth like the first one. It's more toward the back of my mouth. And again, delightful aftertaste, just, just really enjoyable. Um, to, to have that just kind of sitting there in the back of the tongue and in the back of the roof of my mouth. It's like, wow, that is, that is really good. Yeah. Yeah. It's I, a, I like, yeah. And the fact that they, they focus on, you know, the ingredients and it coming off the still, the quality coming off the still is instead of, you know, really stressing about the barrel and the aging process and, and all that it's, you know, although that does play a part, I don't want to diminish that, but the as he said, the the celebration of distillation is, and that just that that brought it all in. Like that was absolutely, you can tell the difference between uh, something that is aged well and something that is made beautifully. I think coming off the still, this would taste delicious. You know, mm-hmm. um, this would taste great in in its you know white dog form, uh, unaged whiskey form. Mm-hmm. So, so well, yeah. when you go over to interview him personally, I'd be happy to carry your bags. So just <laughs> let me know. Uh, he uh, he allegedly may be joining me uh, here on the show in the very near future for a, uh, a powers taste off. So Ooh. yeah. Yeah. So uh, potentially, potentially I'm not, not committing to anything yet, but, uh, but no, I, it was a great conversation too. He, he, passionate whiskey folks are so delightful to have conversations with because when they, they, they love whiskey and they, they love their product but they are they love whiskey and to talk to somebody who is is so very passionate about it is is absolutely amazing because they just they the words they use to describe and how they're able to phrase what they're experiencing with whiskey is gorgeous yeah it just paints this beautiful picture and he even acknowledged the fact he's like you know uh talking about the history of of whiskey be it you know uh irish whiskey or or scotch or whatever he's like he's like you know whiskey stories cuz all the stories that are, you know, are these beautiful romantic tales, but are probably only about a halfway true, you know? So, <laughs> you know, and that's, uh, and, and that was, that was funny, you know, cause he's like, here's this beautiful romantic story and of how he was, you know, he was telling me sharing the, the, the three swallows where the, this whiskey actually got its name. And they're, they're one of the oldest whiskey families in Ireland, uh, to be creating whiskey. And, and they, they actually, they came to the world's fair in Chicago in 19, 
before prohibition. I think 1910. I, I, I don't misquote me. I, I, so they came in in the early 20th century and they built this tower, this whiskey tree or this whiskey tower of powers, bottles of whiskey that was just ridiculous. And the whole thing almost got completely knocked over when this chubby guy with glasses came over and grabbed a bottle off of the tower and wanted some. The chubby guy with glasses was Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, yeah, so, so it was, you know, that's, that's a great story to, to hear the, the account of that and how they ended up giving him a bottle, you know, please put the bottle back. You're about to knock over this tower. Uh, right. but, uh, but here's, here's a bottle of Powers whiskey, but yeah, so this is, they make, uh, three different types. They've got their gold label, the three swallow, and then the, uh, the John Lane reserve, which has an awesome story to it too, but I won't get into that right now. So whiskey, that is, that is the whiskey number two of the day. Uh, Powers, mm-hmm. single pot still uh, out of the Middleton Distillery. I strongly recommend you go and give this if you are a, a whiskey person, even if you're just a, if you're a bourbon faithful. Uh, give this a shot because I think I think you may enjoy it. So here we go. Um, let's let's talk about uh, Christmas in the good old days. So when you think of Christmas in the good old days, what what is that for you, Dad? I have to go back to my days uh, when we were living down the road from Laura Ingalls Wilder. Uh, is that too far back? Oh, no, I'm not that old. Sorry. Um, Come right to Jesus. I, Come right to Jesus. It, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it, the, the good old days, that, that, it's such, that's such a difficult phrase to deal with because uh, for those of us that uh, have read some stuff, who have a mild interest in history, you know, we, we see those things and we read about those things. And um, uh, for the good old days for me, um, the best part about Christmas was that I was an only child for seven years. And so Christmas uh, at my house was great because I could tell without reading the tags that most of those gifts under the tree were for me. Now, there weren't a lot there, but most of them were for me because I was the only child and I had four grandparents. Um, I had uh, uh, an aunt and an uncle. Uh, and so, man, I had, I had stuff and there was no other, no other kids, you know, in the extended family. So I made out like a bandit, uh, every year. And then my sister came along, Aunt Lisa or no Aunt Colleen. And that kind of crimped on my style for a little bit. And then of course, when Lisa showed up, that was, that was the ball buster right there, um, in more ways than one. But anyway, I, you know, so, so I think about those and of course, um, being, uh, part of the Catholic Church at that point in time in my life. Uh, Christmas was always about going to uh, midnight mass uh, on Christmas Eve, about not being able to eat so that we can take communion, because at that point in time before Vatican II, you know, you had to fast for so many hours before you you went and took communion. So, so going to church was a big deal for us. Uh, not so much later in life, because I... I uh, grew away from the Catholic Church and and had other other pursuits and was a long time before I came back to the church. But I came back to the Protestant flavor as opposed to the Catholic flavor. So that was a whole new religious experience with Christmas. Uh, and of course, having your own family changes the way you look at it. But throughout all of that, family has been that one center point of that time. It was a time to get with family. It was a time of seeing people that you didn't see all the time. Now, 
we were a pretty nuclear family. We had a ton of people living. Uh, I grew, was born and raised in, in Buffalo. And so we had a ton of family in Buffalo. So when the family got together, we're talking like 30, 40 people, you know. Um, so there was a lot of people uh, that were involved with, with Christmas celebration, not always on Christmas Day, but as part of the Christmas season. So that kind of stuck. Um, so it's, it's really always been about family and, and the church and, of course, me getting as many presents as I possibly could. So um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how else to describe it. So those are the good old days. Probably one of the biggest changes to my view of Christmas was was when I got married because your your mom came from a completely different framework. All of your mom's family, uh, she she was in Syracuse when we met. She was living in Syracuse. Grandma and Grandpa were living in Syracuse. Um, all of her extended family was from Long Island, so their Christmas was very nuclear. It was just. Mom and Dad DeStefano and the kids, and that was it. Okay, so th- so that was very different for her for her, and so we had to negotiate that because it was like, okay, whose family are we going to at Christmas? You know, because they were far enough apart where we couldn't make it both in one day, so we had to pick one one year and pick one the next year. That was tough. It was probably tougher on the moms than it was on us. That was also, I mean, both. Mom and Dad DeStefano had very good jobs. My dad was a school teacher. Mom worked part-time as an operator at a hospital. So even though I got the vast majority of the presents, there weren't a lot of gifts. The first time I went to the DeStefano home for Christmas, this was before your mom and I were married, I I thought I had walked into Macy's. Okay? <laughs> I mean, it, just piles and piles of gifts. And that was, that was really mom DeStefano. That was her thing. And so that was overwhelming that the first time I I saw that kind of extravagance and it was like, wow, I'm glad I'm going to be a part of this, you know, because that that means there's got to be some in there for me, right? (laughs) When I joined this family uh, with that big pile of, of presents. So, so making our Christmas, your mom and I's Christmas, unique. It, it took a while for that to to formulate and catch on. And <laughs> um, we we always have this interesting kind of conversation about tinsel on the tree. Because <laughs> I remember the these Desti- conversations. Yeah, on the, in the Destefano home, the tinsel was put on one strand at a time, and there was a lot of it. You almost couldn't not see the tree. Well for I don't know how many years now we have no tinsel on on the tree and and so you know so, so you have those kind of traditions that are are from the school of give and take so it's been family it's been it has had strong religious overtones probably more so uh, as I've gotten older uh, and have been able to to think about um, the religious infusion at, in this time of the year. So, so that's, that informs my, my view of Christmas and, and some of the traditions, but family and, and whatnot. And, um, and of course, you know, gifts, gifts are always fun. Yeah. It's looking back on, why why we look back at at Christmas back then and and we think to ourselves and we touched on this before 
we look at look at it through a different lens. You know how you viewed Christmas as as a you know a single child back in the day. You know your oh presents. You know what I mean? Oh, there for mm-hmm. me. You know, and how that that lens shifts. You know when you change roles from from child to parent, and now and now that it, yes. so the change and that shift. You know, Christmas doesn't really itself doesn't in fact change your. Uh, lack of a better term, your duties and responsibilities, however, change with that that change in roles. And and we look back on Christmas of, you know, the good old days and and how it was, oh, it was easier and it was less and it was this and it was that. Is it, was it really, or was it, you know, were, were we looking through all of this with just a simple lens? And do you find yourself thinking back, you know, Christmas 10 years ago was way better than it is now. Like Christmas sucks. Uh, you know, and, and not Christmas like the holiday, but like uh, the Christmas, the mantra around Christmas. Do you, you know, have you, have you had those moments where you, you kind of look back and think, man, 20 years ago, it, it was, it was way better. Um, no, because uh, 20 years ago, your mom and I didn't have two nickels to rub together. So it was never great. It was like, okay, at least let's get something for the kids and, you know, we won't worry about us, although we always ended up getting something for each other. So, no, 20 years ago, it wasn't better because it was it was stressful. You know, uh, the jobs that we've had have never been big money jobs. So it was, uh, you know, always kind of tight around Christmas time. And at that point in time where you don't have a lot of equity built up in anything and somebody gives you a credit card, it's rather pretty high great. So all of a sudden Christmas is okay. But then the next three months are really killing you because the interest rate on the credit card is so high. So you end up spending four times as much money. You know, I'm sure uh, some of the financial planner guys that might be listening are saying, oh, you're such an idiot. Don't be telling people that. It's (laughs) like, yeah, I I understand. It's bad. Uh, You know, uh, what's his name? Dr. Ramsey or whatever it is, is probably just uh, cursing me now if he's listening to this broadcast. Um, I just, uh, you know, it was just, we did what we did, um, because uh, again, uh, it was really more of a focus on, on the kids at that point in time. Um, again, which, which has changed some, I, I think that, that, um, mom and I, as, as much as we still get stuff for the kids and now the grandkids, I think, well, mom has always been very thoughtful about gift giving and me, not so much. Uh, so it's your then, damn fault. <laughs> That's okay. I can look yeah, no. <laughs> um, I've gotten more thoughtful about about the things that I get for her trying trying to be anyway I don't know that I always succeed but I, I try to be so th- so that's been a change um, but no was Christmas great 20 years ago no no it wasn't we've had some great I, I measure Christmases by the trees we've we've had great trees. The first year we were in uh, Battle Creek, we went out, we decided we were going to cut our own Christmas tree. We did. And when you cut a Christmas tree down that's outside, it looks like it's going to fit, but you're outside. So the ceiling is like, you know, 15,000 feet in the, in the air. So it's like uh, you'd bring it home and you go to set it up and it doesn't fit. So, you know, we had to cut two feet off the bottom of the Christmas tree to get it into the living room. And, uh, when we got the first day after it was up and decorated, we came home from work that day and it's laying on the floor in the (laughs) living room on its side. 
and so we had just moved into this house and it had this really gnarly carpet in the in the kitchen. So I went and got four three eighths inch lag bolts and lagged the tree stand into the floor because the tree was so big the tree stand couldn't hold it. You know, so yeah, we remember that Christmas tree. <laughs> anyway. So my, my Christmas has morphed and changed. Uh, there isn't one particular era that I say, oh, no, that was the ideal. That was where we really were hitting on all cylinders. That was the Christmas that I think all Christmases should be. I've, I've never really had that. At least I've never really thought that. Um, they've all been different and good for many and various reasons. I would, uh, I, I would mirror that, but I, I think we would be – I think if we did a general poll and this is just a, a hypothetical and, and I, there may be more people that, that agree with, with your point uh, as I do than, than I, I think do. But um, I think most folks would say, yeah, I remember the good old days. And I remember, I remember, you know, Christmas was a, uh, used to be about family and it used to be about this. And now it's just about stuff and toys. And it, one of the, the points that Niesenbaum drives home is the fact that no, that it was, it was always about that stuff. It's always been about those things. And, and it's just, again, it's that, that shift in focus from, from our roles that, that have changed. And uh, it, it's it, it absolutely wonderful to listen because I've, I've never really talked to you about Christmas specifically and how that changed from you as a kid to you as a married, you know, man, uh, you know, as, as, a, as, a, you know, as an adult and and listening to that for the first time as we're as we're doing this now, I there's so many similarities in your your <laughs> how Christmas changed for you. It's so very similar to how it changed for me. Even down to the point where the first couple of years we would come home for Christmas and we would spend Christmas Day running between the two houses. And I it got to the point where I was like, okay, this is bullshit. Like I'm the yeah. Christmas sucks. So we joined the army and now we can't come home because we're we're 900 miles away and. Uh, you know, privates in the army don't make a lot of money. So, so we're stuck at home. <laughs> and so we have our very first, you know, Christmas, that's our Christmas. That's the, the McGlynn Jr. Let's call it uh Christmas, yeah. you know, the very first one. And I remember the conflict between how we decorate the tree, how, we, which is, is still a point of contention as I spoke <laughs> about in part one. Uh, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, like how we do, Christmas Day and and the rigid construct that was Christmas morning, which I, I think I've I've shared with everybody it, growing up as a kid, you know. So that was that was the what I tried to espouse into our family, and that that did not happen. Jill was not having that because uh, going from youngest to oldest, opening one present at a time, was not how she was going to operate. And so I had to again, it's that give and take where I was like, okay, cool. So you know. <laughs> Then they, let's just let's keep the one at a time thing, but everybody can open up one at a time together, and, you know, and just making something that is totally uniquely ours. The one thing I we did keep is torturing the children from the moment they wake up to when we allow them access to the Christmas tree uh, <laughs> and, and making them stay in a in a position. I, I took it one step further. And if, you know, we arranged them by age and then you know, by, by height and then by freaking craziness, you know, until they're just like, Oh my God, dad, we're like, okay, cool. Come on. You know, and off they go. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but making it uniquely ours. And again, that's, that totally ties into Christmas in America. It is something that we have taken and we have made uniquely ours, but looking back at, at the Christmas of old. And I, one of the, the things that I, I have really kind of looked 
hard and done some reflecting on is, is, is there that time that I can put a finger on and say, you know, Christmas was great here and, and I can't. You know, as a kid, I, I have great Christmas memories, but I cannot put that definitive moment where Christmas back in the day was so much better than it is now. Because it, uh, other than the Christmas decorations showing up in the big box stores in September, uh, as opposed to you know Thanksgiving time, but that's that's whatever. I I, I get it. You know, that's there's capital and and I, things like I, that. I can tell you that the worst Christmas ever was in Pittsburgh. You and Mandy were were very young. Mandy's my older sister. Right. Yeah. I was in graduate school. Your mom was working in a Hallmark store. And I woke up very early Christmas morning not feeling well. So I went out and I was going to run my sickness out of me. So I did, you know, the three-mile there and three-mile back jog to Squirrel Hill. And so... (laughs) When I got home, I felt even worse. I thought I could sweat it out. Well, when I got home, you and Mandy were sick. Mom was the only healthy one. So here are the three of us. I'm on the couch. You two kids are on the floor wrapped up in blankets with pillows and pretty much unconscious. (laughs) And so mom had this fabulous meal planned. So here she is sitting at the dining room table by herself with this huge meal just sitting there, you know, and, uh, and that was the, that was the worst Christmas ever. Uh, I think for everybody anyway, <laughs> be, that, be that as it may one, you know, one thing I, I do remember, which I think the advent of television impacted Christmas when, when TV first came out and, I was a little kid after it had refined itself a little bit. I'm not that old. They started doing toy commercials. And the frequency of toy commercials when I was a kid was through the roof. And as time went along, though the quantity of toy commercials severely diminished. And so you don't have anywhere near the quantity, the sheer total minutes of toy commercials now that you do. Now, you it may be an equal number, but we have so many more stations and channels and uh, streaming services and all that kind of stuff where when you if you were to measure them out, the minutes might be the same. But when you only had three networks, that was a ton of advertising in the holidays. Um, and, and that just doesn't exist anymore. I, I sat down the other day purposely kind of looking for toys uh, for kids and, uh, you know, on, on what I would call network television wasn't there. Now, maybe they're over the top on Nickelodeon and uh, Disney Plus and all those things that are more geared toward kids. I don't know. But um, cause I'm not going to probably sit down and watch those for a whole stinking day. But anyway, um, that, that, that's a, that's a huge difference for me because that was the catalog. The TV was the Christmas catalog. Oh, I want one of those. And I want one of those. And I want one of those because man, they just looked like they were so cool. I think that shift probably had some now anyway, you know, knowing that kids are, are <clears throat> plugged into social media and, other mm-hmm. types of services and devices, I think the shift of maybe the the bulk of the advertising, and I, I would venture a guess, and I can't quantify this, uh, but I would venture a guess that radio, uh, when they did the Saturday morning like kids radio shows, and they did all those things, like they're, the ads that were a part of the radio show that morning were, were geared towards the kids, and I think if you probably watch network TV 
uh, on a on a Saturday morning or, or sometime early in the day where the programming is geared to the kids, you would probably see more of that. But I, I, you you went from being the remote to having a remote and gave you the option to change it. So right, yeah, right, yeah. So right. so I, I don't doubt that 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 there was a shift. And and you're probably right that the minutes are about the same, uh, but we have the ability to immediately instantly shift. Uh, once that commercial comes on, we're like, oh, screw this, boop, you know, we go to something else and uh, we're able to just kind of shut it off where you didn't have that ability before. So one of the the cool things I found, and it's still kind of wrap up the whole, you know, uh, the good old memories of Christmas part of it. In in the Anthropology Today, back in December of 2011, this is published by the Royal Anthropological Institute of Great Britain in Ireland, in an article called uh, Towards a Theory of Santa or... The Ghost of Christmas Present, they say this, quote, In addition, Santa is in constant invocation of a pseudo-historical recollection of a less commodified festival where food rather than gifts presided, where the wealthy gave the poor, uh, where the wealthy gave and the poor received, and Christian sentiments concerning the family, its unity and well-being were paramount. Santa and Christmas are worshipped and mourned for what they never were, as kind of a nostalgic stasis forged as a historical loss of moral meaning and value. It is a nostalgia written into the Christmas ritual itself, end quote. So, and and they, they use a lot of like $9 words there to, to basically say, you know, it, it, it was this, what we think we lost, we didn't really lose. And, and I don't want to make this have some sort of negative feeling or connotation uh, but more of an encouragement uh, for you to uh, embrace and love the nostalgia of your Christmas story. You know, everybody, I, I ask people about their whiskey stories. Tell me your whiskey story. Where did you get involved with that? You know, and then your Christmas stories are also a thing. Uh, and then you see that a lot of people are like, oh, back in the day, it was da da da. No, embrace those Christmas stories, but know that, you know, it's not, you didn't lose it. It, it hasn't really changed. It's still. It's still the same. Embrace them and love them, but don't be discouraged because you think you have lost, you know, the society is falling apart or it has changed so drastically that the good old days of Christmas are now gone. They're not gone. They're still there. They still exist. We do as a people in this country, I think more than, than other places, tend toward nostalgia, tend toward romanticizing the past because we have short memories about the bad things. So we remember the good things. So we we romanticize them and that means we magnify them. And so the romanticization gets magnified. The nostalgia gets magnified and everything was better in the good old days. And I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure we're being honest. Again, it's not a bad thing. It's just that we tend that way because we don't think, and when I say critically, I mean we really inspect it. We don't inspect those things and and derive the things of value and 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 suck them into our our being uh, the way we should. We we would much rather think about them uh, in the past because then they're perfect, as opposed to being real. Um, and and so I I think that that we could all be better as far as introspection and experience judgment experience or judging our experiences a little more objectively than subjectively uh, especially when it comes to ones like this that are so infused with 
romanticization. I mean, come on. Hallmark's been doing Christmas movies <laughs> since November. Okay, for crying out loud. Do and they're all know? awful. Oh, God. <laughs> I was Listen, as a diabetic, as a functional diabetic, <laughs> I if I'm going to sit down and watch a movie on Hallmark, which people have to drag and tie me in a chair to do, I have to have uh, an insulin pen with me or I will die. Okay. It's just, I'm sorry. It, I, I just don't understand. And there are people in our family who will go nameless just in case they're listening to the podcast that, that cannot get through this season without that channel on perpetually 24 seven, even if they're not there listening, even if they're unconsciously sleeping on the couch, you have to have that on. Um, I, who would have like, thought the theater made your birth sappy, emotional people <laughs> that have to watch the Harmark channel. <laughs> okay. I cried at Balto. Yeah, you, d- you, you, did, okay? you did. That's not even a Christmas movie. What the hell? Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> but it happened in the snow, so it might be a Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah, yes, it did occur during the, well, I mean, it occurred in Alaska, so who the hell knows when, you know, I mean. Yeah, they it's could, snow six months out of the year. Uh, yeah, right, maybe. right. So, right. It was, uh, it was absolutely that. So. So yeah, yeah, so that's uh, that, that kind of there. So as we go into the the final the final segment here, uh, let's let's uh, stop and let's let's drink some more whiskey. So, okay. In this last segment, we're going to talk about how Christmas, as we know it, is uniquely American and why it is uniquely American. And in celebration of something that is uniquely American, we are going to leave the beautiful Isle of Ireland and the gorgeous whiskey that it gives us, and we're coming back home. And we're going to drink some bourbon. So bourbon is uniquely American. It is, in and of itself, can only be made in America. It does not have to be made in Kentucky. It uh, has to be at minimum 51% corn. I think I've talked about this many times. You all know this stuff. So, so if you need more uh, bourbon education, listen to some other episodes. I, I'm sure I go off into it. So we are drinking bourbon. We are drinking bourbon out of Oregon. What you have is batch number five of Freeland Spirits bourbon, and it is a mixture of three and 12-year-old sourced whiskey. The master distiller, uh, Molly Troop, uh, she she does this beautiful blending and aging uh, thing that she does. She's incredible. Love her to death. And she has probably put out one of the best, oh, I would say... Outside of Kentucky, probably one of the the best bourbons around, and it is it is one of my top five favorites of of all time. She has a, a nose and a palate that uh, that plays to to my my likes. So this is like I said, batch number five, Freeland Spirits Bourbon. Uh, they are a grain to glass production company. They are also entirely uh, run and operated uh, by women, which is uh, phenomenal and. There is just something about because the the female palate and and female physiology is different. So when they make whiskey, it's different and it is incredible because their their flavor uh, they have more. I I forget what it is and I, I feel like I'm doing a disservice here. They how they their tongue is constructed is different than than men. So when they put flavors together, they are able to just throw together some of the most incredible stuff. So uh, by all means, uh, whiskey number three is batch five of Freeland Spirits bourbon out of Oregon. Oh, and their bottles are super cool, by the way. The, their bottles are badass. So if you, uh, if you look up them. So they are uh, 70% corn, 20% rye, 10% malted barley, and they are finished in French oak casks, which came out of... Some winery. I, I I don't know the name of the winery in Oregon. 
but it's a it's a Pinot Noir that it's aged in and finished in. And this is uh, 92 proof, so this will be the the hottest of what we have drank so far. So you definitely get some of the heat, but that the the sweet delicateness, and that's where I, I picked Freeland because it kind of matches that that delicate texture of of the irish whiskeys that we've had so far mm-hmm. uh when you drink bourbons a lot of bourbons are are very american and they let you know that they're bourbons like we do uh we we let you know that we're americans so it, it matches our our character but this is this, this is uh one of the few bourbons i have found that is just uh just beautiful and i would i would give it the term delicate and wonderful it's it's one of my one of my favorites so and I, and i would agree with that term delicate it's aroma is very soft it's not overwhelming and and so that that's that's kind of sometimes uh when you take take a sniff it's like oh my gosh i think i took a swallow instead you know because it kind of you know just runs right down your your nose into the back of your throat just the just the smell of it um that's not the case with this one and it and it it is a very very soft it's not it doesn't reach out and grab you, you know, it's, it's just, it's, I like it. It's very good. I was given, uh, this particular bottle I was given, uh, as a, as a gift from one of my, my whiskey buddies, Glenn, who lives in Washington. If you're, if you're listening, Glenn, I, I'm still, I'm still slow rolling this bottle. I bought a second bottle uh, just so it, when I run out, I've got backups because it's, uh, it, it's that good. It's that enjoyable. So I, it is one of, like I said, one of my favorites. I, I really enjoy it, and I've I've gotten a chance to to message back and forth with Molly a little bit. Uh, I'll nose whiskeys on occasion. Just I'll I'll pour a bunch and I'll just kind of play with with nosing and tasting a little bit. And inevitably, my youngest daughter Annie comes in, and uh, it was really funny. She she came in and she started. You know, I'm sitting here just kind of sniffing, and and so she'll grab a glass and she'll start sniffing too, and she'll pick out. Uh, we did this. It was a little while ago. I had a bunch of whiskeys on the table and, and she went through and, and I like this one. I don't like this one. And, and by the end of the day, she had three whiskeys and two of the three whiskeys were, uh, which was I, I probably just by a total happenstance. She had no idea about anything about the whiskeys, but she picked out uh, her favorite smelling whiskeys were Freeland Spirits and Widow Jane, which is also made by uh, Lisa Wicker is the, the interim distiller for for Widow Jane. Uh, so I, I thought it was kind of funny that two out of the three that she enjoyed the most had the, the flavor profiles and the, the nose of, uh, you know, these, these wonderful women distillers that are, are making incredible whiskeys. Keep doing, keep doing what you're doing, ladies. I love it. It's awesome. (laughs) All right. So let's, let's talk about Christmas being uniquely American in, in the time where America was kind of moving from, as you said, dad, uh, agrarian to more of a, uh, you know, a, uh, what do I, an urban based kind of, kind of area. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so there's a lot of confusion and this period in America, America is just, we're confused because we've got, now we've got freedom. Now we've got, we've got to build all these things. We've got to figure out all this stuff. What does it mean to be American? And it takes us a long time. And, and we, as, a, as Americans, we, we we don't really know what's going on, and we're we're fucking up a lot of things um, along along our journey to try to to try to figure out what that means, and and Christmas is one of these things that is constructed. It is, it, and it mirrors what really what America is. We take parts and pieces of 
everything. We grab some of this. We grab mm -hmm. some of this. We grab some of this. We... <laughs> Podcasting 101, friends. Shut the sound off on your phone so you don't have weird fish noises coming out. Uh, <laughs> when your game tells you it's time to feed the fucking fish. <laughs> doing this for a year. I ought to know this by now. Anyway, all right. So here we go. So we see Christmas in what we know. We We want it to be this time-honored tradition, but in reality, it is not old. And all of the traditions that we pulled from all of these other cultures are also not that old. We think specifically of Christmas trees, and we think of Santa Claus, and we think of these other, you know, these things that are, we, in our minds, they're, you know, ancient and, and so far out, but in reality, in the scope of things, and for some people, ancient is 200 years old, but in reality, 200 years is not that long ago. I, no. I you know, in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, when you look at civilizations that are, you know, thousands upon thousands of years old versus us in America, where we're, we're brand new yesterday, you know, straight out the box right now. And we constructed all of these things. And why did we construct these things? Why did we put all this together? Why, why Christmas? Why was it? And, and looking at how we took all of these parts and pieces and then we made it and created it into something that is uniquely our own. And the stories behind how all of that came about is really parallels the story of America. If you want to get a feel of how did America come to be, you can use Christmas as a roadmap to that. Because we took a little bit of Germany and we took a little bit of England we took a little bit of Egypt, if you remember from uh, part one, mm -hmm. right? We grabbed all these things, we threw them in this jar, and then we just spent about 20 minutes just shaking the shit out of the jar, and then we dumped the jar out and we said, America, Christmas, you know? And, <laughs> and our, our country kind of kind of was the same. And, and I, I get it. There's a lot of unique niches and, and, and stories there that, that don't really, you know, I, I, I get that. But when we're looking at a generalization, that's kind of how we came about. And so when you are going into the Christmas season and you're trying to get to the origin of Christmas and what origin and what Christmas is, I think it's super important to remember that the Christmas that you celebrate in America is American Christmas. And how you have constructed that to be and what you have made that that to be is 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 Christmas and and stop uh, don't stop the history is f is fascinating keep keep looking and keep digging and keep reading please and and find new stuff because it's there but be okay with the fact that uh, Christmas to you is Christmas and and your what what Christmas is to you is is something that you should celebrate and you should have a wonderful time and and that's okay because in in fact that is what America did back in the early 19th century. We just grabbed a bunch of shit. Uh, we grabbed Santa Claus, this dirty, uh, crazy saint that did a bunch of stuff, or this other guy who brought gifts around the 6th of December, or this other dude who was named Bell's Nickel who did not was not a good guy. Uh, you know, and and <laughs> we made it the long, pretty white beard, uh, pipe smoking Santa Claus, and you know, Christmas trees. You know, you've got old uh, what's his name. Martin Luther stumbling home from a sermon <laughs> because here's the deal. Like uh, with the Martin Luther story, I'm sorry. You don't come home from church and go, 
man, I'm going to bring a tree into my living room and put a bunch of candles on it because this is cool. You grab the family, you go outside and go, look up. Oh, my God. He was drunk. He got into the communion right a little heavy. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. You know, Martin Luther did not uh, hold back on, on uh, shall we say, imbibing of the Spirit, not necessarily <laughs> the Holy Spirit. Um, but so, yeah, that, that could be the case. Yeah. I found it fascinating that a lot of the infusion, uh, if you will, of Christmas was it was happening in the 1800s. Now, think about it. Um, the Civil War was plunked down in the middle of that. Yep. Okay, so here you have a, a culture in America. America is, at that point, less than 100 years old, still trying to find its identity, there is this major schism uh, that had cultural, political, uh, you know, every impact you can imagine. And the Christmas stuff is being dumped into that at the same time. So that's being received differently because the contexts of North and South are different and all that kind of stuff. So I was fascinated by that, that, that all of that stuff was, was coming and happening at the same time. And then you know, because it's it's another uh, sixty years uh, where our the galvanization of the American experience, if I could use that term, um, really it was the First World War that actually pulled us together, so that we had some kind of identity as a nation. And I, I can't remember the quote where we stopped referring to us as the United States, and we started referring to us as America, as a, as a single tight word, as opposed to multiple states. And I, I can't think of where that quote is or what that quote is. But anyway, uh, that, so that's fascinating to me. And, and that Christmas was being carried through and, and molded and shaped uh, through all of that uh, by cultural things, by religious things, by practical things. Um, it really was uh, becoming, I, I, I'm not sure unique is the word, uh, it was becoming distinctly American, I would say, uh, through all of that stuff, which would make it unique on the world scene because everybody's would be distinct one from the other as to how they approach it. But, but yeah, we are in everything and including our holiday traditions, uh, this this melting pot culture that, you know, all of these things just, you know, our, our history, our background, our, our countries of origin, all of that stuff um, impacts us and we carry those things with us and, and we infuse them even unconsciously into the things that we do. I think people might even try to lose sight of that and try to act like, well, you know, we've always been here and we've always done this and this is always the way it will be because it always has been. No, it really only has been for about 250 years. That's not very long in historical scene. No, <laughs> that's, that's a really short timeline. I, I slept in a, a building in Ireland that's older than our country. And that kept me up the entire night. Not because the bed was bad. The bed was beautiful, but I'm, I'm like, okay, this building is older than the country that I was born in. Oh my gosh, I, that that was just overwhelming to me. That that 
you know, our view of history is very myopic, I think. Yeah. Again, it goes back to that point where we take this this thing and we grab onto it and we hold onto it like it is it is this time honored thing. And and we need to be okay with the fact that it's not. It's not mm-hmm. that old. And we can celebrate the fact that it is uh, distinctly, so as uh, to coin the phrase that, that you used, uh, it is distinctly ours. It is distinctly American. Uh, maybe not unique in you know the whole as aspects of a melting pot kind of you know play into that, but the the day itself kind of becomes this this thing that is distinctly ours and being okay with the fact that it's it's not that old and and it, it is something that we we constructed and one of the points that the Nissan brings home is again answering the question as to how it got here and and watching how it it develops through through literature as kind of this this weird social construct that was pushed down to the middle class by the the upper class folks and and he does kind of paint that in a, into a negative light but it, it's okay we need to be okay with that because because that's that got us to where we were and when you can look at a, a christmas morning and be like man yeah this this shit's all right this is cool i'm, I'm good with this you know what mm-hmm. i mean it just just celebrate the fact that it's it, we we built it we you know we didn't build the you know the the origins of the particulars of the day, um, but we brought those things together and we constructed this beautiful thing and we made it ours. And ours is where I want to go next. So, tell me what what is your Christmas? What is Christmas to you specifically? <laughs> um. <clears throat> it, um. It, it it really uh, revolves around the the traditions that we've established as as a family. Um, uh, having uh, first of all, the, the ideal would be to have everybody under one roof at one time. I mean that that is always the the hope and the prayer um, that there's some way for that to happen. Um, because if 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 that could happen, then that would be enough. There wouldn't need to be anything under the tree for me. It would be like all of the kids are here. All of the grandkids are here. It is well with my soul. Uh, that would be okay. I I love, uh, I have come to love. I, I didn't at first, but I have come to love the way your mother approaches how she decorates it. She She's so creative. She does it so lovingly that that I have grown to really look forward to and appreciate um, her touch, her way, her creativity in those things. And and she keeps saying, oh, I've got to throw this stuff out. We just need to downsize and we need to, you know, get rid of this stuff. But yet there are pieces that come out. You know, she still puts out the angel set that I got for her when we lived in Pittsburgh, which was forever ago. Um, that comes out. Now we are one angel less. There were four angels originally, but now there's only three and that's okay. That's kind of Trinitarian. So I can handle that. You know? So <laughs> I forget when the fourth one, you know, oh, we, in, you, know you know, I, I got to bring up some implications there. I mean, if you dropped an angel, God did that once and it went really bad for him, you know, yeah. <laughs> when God dropped an angel, you know, Satan kind of showed up. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, find the that- angel dad. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sorry, it's been missing for decades now. Uh, so anyway, 
so the the family gathering now could could the family all gather in July? Sure they could. Yeah. Is it the same? No, it's not. It doesn't have the same feel. It has a different feel. You know, you're sitting by the pool, you're having a beer, you're, you know, you're all getting baked by the sun and, and you're just jabbing away and everything's great. It's kind of, it, it's, there are very strong similarities, but it's not the same. Um, there is just something about home and family at this holiday for me. Um, the other part of that is that uh, obviously not because of what I do, um, but because of, of who I am as a person of faith, uh, that enters, uh, very strongly into this over the last uh, few years. Um, I have spent the better part of Advent, which is the season, the, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, um, studying and meditating on the incarnation, which, uh, just fascinates me as one of those you know, Christian mysteries that um, uh, defies to be figured out, uh, and yet I still come back to it and and uh, and try and uh, appreciate it and recapture awe over over this incredible thing that I think that God has done. Um, and and that would and that would be enough. Uh, that would be th- those two things would be enough for me. Um, uh, although I do like to see my name on those specially wrapped packages, that seems to have pulled through from my childhood, you know. Uh, but that's uh, that's uh, probably shouldn't brag about that too much. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, those are uh, those would be the, the the three things, and and probably uh, in a in a in a hierarchical, hierarchical order. Um, that's probably how I, how I would list them. Uh, one, not so much based on like the, the consideration of meditation on, on the, uh, incarnation of, of Jesus would be the season. It would be a season long thing and not so much the day. The family thing is the day. Now for the first time in many, many years, I'm working. Christmas day. I'm doing a 12 hour shift at the hospital. And in the day of COVID, there's lots of people that are working, um, that on days when they usually might not work. Um, so that, that makes it different, uh, for me, uh, this year. Uh, and because of that, some of our traditions have had to shift and move and that kind of stuff, as I'm sure for many people, COVID has created or wreaked havoc. Maybe we should probably say, as far as what people have maybe traditionally done in the past around this time of the year. Uh, and that's just been thrown off to the side. You know, it's almost like, okay, we got to wait till next year. I mean, you know, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan, so, you know, it's never next year, you know, (laughs) except this year. I think this year is next year. Okay. So, uh, for Buffalo Bills, go Bills. Uh, (laughs) anyway, sorry. So, and I, I think there are people that are really struggling, uh, because of the current situation in our country, as far as uh, COVID nineteen, that is throwing a monkey wrench. You know, we kind of we got a flavor of it at Thanksgiving, and now Christmas is a little bit bigger than Thanksgiving, and I think there are people that are really struggling with trying to, how do I still do the things that are so meaningful to me that that make this season meaningful to me, 
and and yet I can't. There are these barriers. There there are these things that I I can't uh, embrace things the way I want to. And and what are people going to do that? I'm I'm concerned for for our for the people of our country, for our nation as 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 how they're going to process the loss of their their traditional feel good stuff because this is you know this is a, about we we love this time of the year uh, now there are some people that don't love this time of year and i understand that too i understand that there's been people that have lost loved ones there are people that have not just from covid-19 but there have been people whose whose parents have died or sisters or brothers or nephews or children have died and so christmas becomes a difficult time for them but yet, even in the midst of that difficulty, they still have traditions that help them get through. And are those things going to be smashed because of COVID-19? So those people are doubly in trouble. I, I have great concern uh, for for many people this, this holiday season. I, I know that I'm struggling. And believe me, uh, we haven't had it nearly as tough as, as lots of people that we know. We've been healthy. We've done well, but I'm I'm struggling with how this holiday is going to play out for us and what that's going to mean uh, for me and and uh, my family. You know, so it's it's um, it's tough. It's difficult. This year, I again, I, I think we will look back. Maybe not you and I. Uh, historically speaking, I, I think this year will be will be looked back on in in a realm maybe not as as drastic but similar to a major shift in how we celebrate a holiday because we have to we have to make adjustments we have to change we have to we cannot do uh, what is it uh, modus operandi or what you know we can't do our our what we've done every time we we have to change and i think there may be folks that benefit from that you know i'm trying to 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 be the silver lining at this point i, I think there may be folks that that for the first time ever get to experience a unique Christmas to themselves. And although emotionally it will probably be trying, you know, they'll, they'll come out of that going, you know what? That was all right. Mm -hmm. You know, it was different. It wasn't bad. It was just different. And there'll be folks that adopt that. I think from moving forward, uh, there'll be a lot of folks that say, man, that was different and we're never doing it again. <laughs> you know, once, <laughs> once they move forward. Uh, so I, I do have hope. I, I know it will be, it will be tough to uh, for a lot of folks uh, this this holiday season, and we're already seeing it. Uh, Thanksgiving was a big one uh, that people had to make some major major changes over their Thanksgiving holiday, and then you know Christmas coming up is another another big one where people make time. Christmas allows people to make time to go and and reach back and connect with family members that they may not have connected with you know for an entire year. Uh, and then they lose that that one connection point, and that that's pretty that's pretty tough, and that sucks. Uh, I do want to offer words of encouragement. I, I believe uh, this will be limited, and when we we talk about it, we need to make sure that we're talking about this one. Christmas won't change forever; just this Christmas, and we yes. need to because I think that there, there's hope to be had in looking at. At Christmas now, this this Christmas, 2020's Christmas, just like everything else in this year, is probably going to suck. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna move on from that. And I, I the words from <laughs> the song, uh, the the closing number from Avenue Q, which is a Broadway show uh, with puppets 
wildly profane, incredibly entertaining. Recommend it. The song is for now, uh, and and the theme is you know it's only for now. And I I would really uh, offer encouragement to those who are are struggling right now. Uh, that song, uh, please don't listen to any other song in that freaking the thing. Just listen to that one. Just just that one <laughs> because you know <laughs> if you listen to the you other songs, you may never talk to me again. Of mind to get through it all. Yeah, yes, it's yeah. true. But anyway, uh, yeah, you want to really connect with your parents, uh, sit through a, a Broadway show that has a puppet sex scene. That's the, you, you, <laughs> you bond as father and son when you're sitting next to each other watching puppets have sex. <laughs> but man, we're going way off the rails on this one. So, yeah, uh, so and, and, I mean, and such a such a uh, an interesting call to hope uh, is, uh, you know, not everybody can use a, a, a puppet Broadway show to to call people to hope to get through a, a particular season. That's going to be rough. But uh, you've done it. And you did it well. I, I think you're right. I think that song is absolutely appropriate, uh, especially for the circumstances that we're in uh, in this country is. Yeah, it's it's for now. It's for now. Yep. And, and that's okay. We, we need to be able to change the things we do. We're so regimented. We're so uh, lockstep, at, you know, with some of the things in our lives. And we need to understand flexibility and spontaneity and uh, be able to be creative with those things and not be afraid of that. I, I think that's why we, we regiment ourselves because we're afraid of spontaneity. We're afraid of creativity. And it's like, no... Let's let's let some of that stuff loose. If nothing else, the what you called the revelry of Christmas, that Mardi Gras stuff was a real letting loose. Historically speaking, I mean, think about it. Um, we saw it uh, full scale in the in the Roman Empire and and that has carried through into modern America. Uh, although I, I think we've kind of shifted toward uh, New Year's Day with the kind of, you know, craziness, public craziness. It's more culturally appropriate in that context. Um, but but there, at least, I mean, if not all the activities, at least there was some creativity there, was, there was some spontaneity there uh, that, that gave people an opportunity to, just to kind of, uh, let loose and, and to um, uh, do something different. Uh, and, and maybe that's what we need to do uh, this Christmas time is to do something different and, and embrace those things uh, that are more creative, more spontaneous and less regimented and traditional. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. So throughout the show, we've talked about Christmas. We've talked about things and we've seen that Christmas is a mix of things that has been seen, heard, dreamt and concocted uh, and made distinctly, as my father put so beautifully, uh, distinctly American. And we celebrate that. And we've talked about what Christmas is to us and some of the origins. And I really hope everybody has gotten a chance to to listen to this series and kind of uh, take a, a different view on Christmas in a, in a positive light, you know, I'm, I'm not looking to, to cancel Christmas. That is not my intent. I want to educate Christmas and I want to, to get people uh, thinking maybe a little bit differently and outside the box about Christmas than they had before. And hopefully that is what we have done with the, uh, this series at Why Whiskey. So dad, thank you so much for, for coming and being a part of this today. It's been awesome. So for those of you, I'm going to give a a quick uh, little history thing. So uh, a family history thing. So throughout growing up as a kid, 
uh, my dad and I, uh, I don't even know how to put this. So the greatest conversations I have ever had with my father have been when we walk. Uh, we would go for walks. And as a kid, as a teenager, uh, even as an adult still, uh, whenever, you know, I would I would say, hey, dad, we want to go for a walk. And and the conversation that would come out of that walk would be huge. And, and if dad said, hey, let's go for a walk, I'd be like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Something. <laughs> Some bad's happening. Oh, God. Here we go. Um, the One of the greatest uh, memories of, of walking with my dad was uh, we went to a Red Wings game in Detroit and we got to we got into Detroit so the traffic was super light so we got there super early and dad was like hey let's hop the train and go grab like Subway or something to eat before we go to the thing and I was like yeah so we go to Subway and he's like hey let's walk back to the stadium I'm like this is a terrible idea this is Detroit like this is, <laughs> what the fuck are we doing <laughs> but I remember we walked back from that Subway to the back to the uh, the Joe Louis Arena and uh, and had a great conversation and and I think we ended up having to cross uh, I seventy five if I remember correctly, on foot. It uh, was a very busy road. It I was, could very well have been a highway. I don't remember, it but it was, uh, yeah, it was a bit of insanity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we did not uh, pay attention to our surroundings when we left the arena. But anyway, uh, it, but it was cool. But uh, this has been, uh, th- this whole uh, episode has just been another, another walk with my dad, and I've really enjoyed that. So, Dad, unfortunately for you, though, uh, you are a guest on Why Whiskey, and my guests, before they are allowed to leave, are subject to five questions. So oh. five very specific questions. Do not overthink these. Okay. All, all of my guests tends to overthink I have these. I've never and, been accused of overthinking things. Uh, that's a total lie. And as a man of God, I feel as though uh, we should admonish you just a little bit right there. Okay. <laughs> Consider away. yourself admonished. All right. all right. Okay, so five questions. Here we go. You ready? <laughs> All right. Question number one. What's your spirit animal? My spirit animal? Uh, oh, my gosh. Uh, I I think it's uh, I, I think it is uh, like. A, oh, wow. A Labrador retriever. Do they are they spirit animals or are they too dopey? I have one and I hate them. But you, oh. you could actually, you know, he's, he's an asshole, but you could be, I, I, I know really good I labs though. Be, I want it to be a lion. Okay. You know, I want to be, you know, bold and growly like a lion. I, it's probably really more of a bear that is just coming out of hibernation. Grumpy and hungry. I love it. <laughs> Boy, is that not a golden retriever? I tell okay. you what. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Question number two. Uh, what five items do you keep in your mental health first aid kit? Oh, uh, uh, watching episodes of West Wing, um, uh, being outside and probably in the evening where I can get a, sh- a look at the sky. Um, med- meditating on nature. Um, always kinds of brings me squared away, uh, and, uh, uh, talking with your mother. That's four. Oh, um, wow. Mental health. Obviously I'm very, not very mentally healthy. <laughs> I only have four. <laughs> um, Sorry, can't think of another one. All right, so only four. He only takes four things. Look at that. Show off. All right, number three. Uh, (laughs) 
Favorite whiskey or distilled spirits? Uh, uh, well, I, I and I think it's because my dad had it probably uh, uh, most often uh, is Jameson. I, I I really like Jameson. There's just something about that that it um it just has an incredible taste that I just I just really love. So um, although probably that's a little bit ahead of Pickaxe Blonde, which is a a beer that comes out of a brewery in uh, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, uh, actually Keweenaw Brewing Company uh, up in Houghton, Michigan. So I I really enjoy that. All right, question number four: If you could know one truth about yourself, what would it be? Oh my gosh! And this is the one that everybody overthinks. Yeah, but it's not. A, it's not like what's your favorite color? Blue? No, green. What? Um, sorry. <laughs> Where did Monty Python come from? Um, I wish. I wish I had realized sooner in my life how I was wired. I, I, I've always wanted to, I, I always kind of was like drifting along and not really knowing how I was wired as a person until later in life. And, and it was then I started to be able to embrace that. I wish I had known sooner in my life what I was really like. Uh, and I had taken the time to do that. And I, and I never did because I was so busy doing stuff. Um, so I wish I had known more about myself earlier in my life. That's fair. That's a good one. All right. Final question. Does okay. history scare you? D- does what scare me? Does history scare you? <laughs> Only if your mother is saying, we're going to these five museums today. Um, she loves history. She is wired for history. She is the history maven. And I like charging down the hill in the woods in um, uh, Gettysburg. Okay. Um, but that's probably as historical as I get. Um, I was really captured by uh, Nessenbaum's uh, book, and I think that's the last history book that I've ever even opened, let alone read. Um, I can't think of the last one. I think it was in high school, okay? I think it was 10th grade history uh, was the last history book that I actually read, and not very much of that to boot. So, um, so yeah. Uh, does her, no history doesn't make me nervous. I like to think about it. I like to look at it. Uh, but if it has to be in a manifestation like a museum or something like that, then no, I'm I'm probably out. I I think that's a uh, it's the museums that scare you, not so much the history that's within the museums. But I I, I totally get it. I totally get it. And actually, I I think the pilot for for this podcast actually talks about moms. Uh, mom's trip, the the history trip that we went on when I was in uh, uh, like seventh or eighth grade, and uh, and that really that was one of that and uh, falling into whiskey was kind of the two reasons where you know my my passion for for early American history kind of came from was mm-hmm. you know standing at the center point of of the Union Line at Gettysburg and then going through uh, Valley Forge and all these other kind of crazy places really just kind of that kind of solidified my my future in in history and uh, whether I'm I'm telling old stories about dead people or uh, or doing whatever I'll, I'll, that will always be a, a passion of mine is uh, is history and it was I can I can pinpoint it back to that that very trip uh, 
which mm-hmm. uh, which I cover in in the pilot. So awesome. Well, all right, folks, uh, that's going to wrap it up for tonight. We uh, we we've been we've been at this a while. So uh, please uh, break this up if you need to. Uh, I know we've we've been chatting a lot and we've covered a whole lot of stuff. So this is the end of our three part series on Christmas and looking at some historical aspects of Christmas, both outside and within America. My guest this evening has been my father, uh, my pastor, my mentor, and uh, one of my very, very bestest friends ever, uh, Mike McGlynn. So if you all would like to get a hold of him, please uh, just drop a comment uh, on any of the uh, any of the podcasting platforms that you listen to, and, uh, and I will be sure to forward that to him and let him uh, contact you directly. So, Dad, I love you. Thanks for coming tonight. Love you too. Thanks for uh, asking me here. I, I really enjoyed the, the, the whiskeys that you had uh, for us. I appreciate the fact that you acquiesced from bourbon a little bit and got me into the Irish realm. So thanks for that. I appreciate it. My my pleasure. My pleasure. The whiskeys tonight have been Nepo Castle 12-Year, uh, Powers, Three Swallow, and Freeland Spirits bourbon. Uh, that'll do it for me. Uh, I'm Ian. This is the Bar of Questionable Life Choices and... Why Whiskey Goodnight, friends. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, if you have any comments, questions, or would like to join me at the Bar Questionable Life Choices for an episode, hit me up on email at whiwhiskeyhistory at gmail.com. Cheers. <laughs>